You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, Episode 20 with Sumner Brooks. Sumner is a registered dietitian nutritionist and certified eating disorder specialist based in Portland, Oregon, who has been working with clients on all levels of the disordered eating spectrum for 15 years. This might be a little obvious later in the conversation. Sumner is a mom and has put her knowledge, intuition, and parenting skills of intuitive eating to the test of real life. So when you listen to our conversation, it's not just a hypothetical. She's also the founder of an online training platform for weight-inclusive eating disorder professionals geared toward dietitians. You may have heard of it before called EDRD Pro. She is the co-author of How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, and I'm very excited to share our conversation. All right, let's get started. Been around the block. You've been around. You've been doing this for years. Who is Sumner Brooks? Sure. Yes. I have been around for a little while doing this. Um, I've been a dietitian for 15 years and really learned about intuitive eating and anti-diet approach very early on in my career. My very first job after I got my master's and became an RD was in a bariatric surgery center in LA. And it was incredibly formative. I can't tell you how many times I shed tears with my clients and patients just over this heartbreak of what it is to live with disordered eating and weight stigma and navigating this world in a larger body. And I had been suffering for most of my life up to that point with disordered eating and various manifestations of an eating disorder. So I was connecting with my clients, you know, very quickly and had so much empathy for people, but also was seeing from the inside the problems with the business of bariatric surgery, which also was really eye-opening and enlightening. At the same time, that job had kind of another arm of that job was running this medical weight loss program where people were prescribed foods out of a box that they had to buy. I'm not going to name the name, the label, but um, use your imagination. Yes. So everyone was eating something out of a box with a very restricted calorie level. And it was really difficult to be involved in that as a professional. I mean, I lasted just a few months there. I had to exit my role. I couldn't be a part of the harm that was being caused by these programs. So I think really that that very first job set me on the path to knowing very clearly what I don't want to be doing. And then I spent some years working in corporate nutrition um, for Fortune 500 companies, working with people who were essentially participating in workplace wellness initiatives and lunch and learns and counseling. And it was there that I really became um, so interested in intuitive eating and found Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch, the authors of Intuitive Eating. And I started inserting the 10 principles into these PowerPoints that I was presenting in these lunch and learn programs and these quote weight management programs at these companies. And I was doing it completely 
unethically and with no (laughs) awareness of, you know, I was probably confusing people to no end, you know, they would still weigh in and yet they were learning about intuitive eating. And so I have a lot of grace for myself and acknowledge that I was learning and I was in a process. We all go through at some point, but it brought a lot of positivity and joy. And I think, I do think it was helpful for these people as they kind of were on this path towards what they thought was this necessary weight loss program, but they were really learning to connect with their bodies and to question diet culture and to tune in. And so all of those things I think did bring some, some positive changes to folks. So from there is when I, after a few years went into sports nutrition, I became a board certified sports dietitian, worked with athletes for quite a while And disordered eating kept popping up. Eating disorders were really something that I knew I was going to be working with one way or another, and then pivoted and decided I really wanted to specialize in eating disorders. Um, Then I I had a private practice for many years outside of LA in the South Bay area, which is where I really started my close mentoring work with Elise Resch and really never looked back from there. And that became kind of my whole approach and understanding of healing with food and body through intuitive eating. So we can end the podcast right now because that was the journey (laughs) of a lifetime. (laughs) And then I became a mom. (laughs) Yeah. And that's where it starts. So how would you say that coming from this sort of experience, obviously like our journey in intuitive eating is always a journey is probably a good word to use, always evolving. Now you're at the point where you're talking about raising intuitive eaters. So I guess I'm curious how this book came to be, like how to get the idea, where to come from. I love talking about this. I mean, I have to always tip my hat to Elise Resch, who, um, again, longtime mentor of mine, very close friend. She's brought such wonder and change to my life, really, um, as a mentor. And we had a few conversations about the need for this book quite a few years ago. And I sort of was, I was in the midst of a divorce and having a baby and kind of all of my big life shifts. And I said, no way I cannot write a book. No, thank you. That's someone else's job. And then it came back and popped up again a couple of years ago. And Elise just said, I really think that you need to write this book. And that seed was planted and it's just one of those things that did not go away. So I knew that I really did want to write this book. And I thought that one of the best things I could do is have a partner in that process just to, you know, limit the bias and kind of widen the lens. And we really wanted to write a book that was as inclusive as we could write, include different stories from people from different backgrounds so I knew of Amy Severson. Um, she's located up in Washington and I'm in Oregon. So it wasn't that far of a stretch, but Amy also has a child around the same age as my oldest and is a great writer. And I just had a, a wonderful feeling that this could be a beautiful partnership. And we wrote an amazing book together. And honestly, people have kind of warned us about the problems that can come up with having two authors and co-authoring can be challenging, but it was a lot of fun. And I'm so glad that we did it together. She was definitely the right person. Yes. And I'm excited to read the book. I haven't yet. So forgive me if some of my questions are a little naive, 
But even in just starting a little bit more broadly, and we can assume that we're talking to parents or people who are interested in becoming parents, people who are around kids, what are some, starting broadly, some sort of key pieces of information for people to know who want to raise intuitive eaters? Yeah, so that's actually how we structured the book, um, is really kind of breaking all of this down, which is such a complex topic in and of itself. You know, you're talking about parenting, you're talking about diet culture, disordered eating, weight stigma. So we knew we needed to break it down and create something that was digestible and accessible to people. The main ideas that we felt are really helpful for people is to number one, to understand kind of where we're all starting, the culture that we live in. We refer to this as the status quo. So understanding the problems with the status quo, that what is it that is causing harm to our kids if we don't stop and think critically about mainstream feeding advice and cultural norms around dieting? We, as a parent, and if you're surrounded by other parents or caregivers, if you start looking around and noticing how often caregivers assume this role of needing to control or to pressure or to praise kids for eating, even just something as simple as, oh, good job, look how much you ate, or no, you can only have one cookie. But then we also have all of this kind of narrative around weight stigma, which is also completely normalized in our culture, the beliefs that thinner is better and it's an ideal. And so what we know in really looking at research and science around this is that there are real risks and consequences, not just of disordered eating, but also other health risks and mental health risks of this status quo, that what we are doing by reenacting this and participating in this is actually not the most helpful thing that we can be doing for our kids. Not only is it not the most helpful, it's actually quite harmful for a lot of kids. So we need parents to start there and kind of be armed with some real information about why they might want to change what they're doing or why when they have a child, they might want to approach it from this alternate view. So that's which is more complicated than, you know, your normal intuitive eating sort of perspective or book, because we're talking about the parenting piece and all of those nuances can be its own topic in and of itself. And we're kind of marrying the two together, which means that it's a really large topic to cover really large topic. There is a lot of information and a lot of education because part of doing this is understanding that the way we help form beliefs and attitudes and behaviors with children is not necessarily in teaching them anything. The kind of core of raising an intuitive eater or raising a child to have food and body confidence and food and body peace is supporting them to live, grow, and develop with their natural abilities that they're born with. We're not teaching them necessarily anything. And so that's also something that parents kind of need to wrap their heads around because we're in this mentality that teach, 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 you know, nutrition education, vitamins, minerals, food groups, as if that is really the thing that's going to be most helpful to our kids. And it's really not. Actually, that's just kind of cognitive thinking and information. So you're saying basically helping kids kind of fall into their natural ability, fostering sort of an open 
environment for that to just happen. Right. Creating a supportive environment that's free of body shame and judgment, free of weight stigma, that supports children in following their internal body cues by not pressuring and praising. We allow children the opportunity to act out of their internally driven, uh, really, biology, which is that we are born as humans and designed to be curious and to seek out satisfaction, that we actually are born knowing how to eat. And this has gotten really lost underneath all of the nutrition messaging and childhood obesity rhetoric. And so we've just lost sight of this very important truth is that as humans, we're born knowing how to eat and we do rely on our caregivers to provide us the food and the structure that we need in order to fulfill our biological design of being able to eat without having to be taught how to eat. Let's just say practically, I'm trying to figure out dinners, well, breakfast, lunch, and dinners and snacks for my kids. And I have a few kids and they're all different ages. What does it actually look like? Does it matter what I'm serving? Does dinner time um, sort of behaviors matter? What do I actually do? Sure. Yeah. We've included a lot of practical advice in the nutrition chapter for parents because we understand that there's so much confusion out there and there are these really big questions that parents have and, and they deserve to have answers to those questions. So it's not binary, right? There's not one right way to feed a child. Everyone is coming from their own cultural heritage, their own traditions, their own preferences, different socioeconomic situations. And so if we sort of look at this from like a hierarchy of needs perspective, you know, which is like, what are, what are the most basic needs that we have to fulfill in order for a child to be able to have the supportive environment that is going to allow them to flourish and grow and then maintain that curiosity and internal drive to eat. Well, we know that nutrition does matter. It's just, it doesn't matter kind of on the micro level that all the headlines are going to make parents think. And so we encourage parents to feed children number one, in this way that promotes trust and security. So I like to help parents think back to when an infant is first born, the very first need that they have is this need to feed. And they associate feeding with comfort and nurturing and care. And so one of the very first things that an infant, the tasks, kind of developmental tasks that an infant is fulfilling is establishing trust with a primary caregiver. One of the ways we do that is through the feeding relationship. So if we can think about how vital and important it is to address this need for feeding and comfort with our infants and think about carrying that through for an older child for a toddler, for a developing child, that they rely on this trust to feel relaxed about food, to feel secure with food, and to know that there's going to be enough food. So really what we're talking about is not so much of like what necessarily is served. It does matter in the sense of satisfaction and growth, you know, and having enough food to eat. But the thing that's so often missed 
is this feeding relationship and how important it is to have that security that there will be enough food. And so we do that through consistent feeding and through some structure. That's really the caregiver's job is to provide the food in a way that meets the needs of the child. So we have some examples of like different schedules that that might actually look like depending on the age of your child or the needs of your family. Am I answering your question? Because I know there's a lot there. Yeah. And I think that also the point is that with any question that you're going to answer, I'm going to have like 10 more questions. We can't possibly get to all of them. But I guess something that's jumping out to me, mostly because I've heard this so often, and I've kind of seen it with kids, if they're presented with so many different options. And I think what you're saying is that the nutrition piece of it is important, but less important than the relationship with food and the trust. Um, and the caregiver and the fact that the food will be there, but kind of moving down to the next level of the nutrition, there's all this sort of food around and the kid will always go for the same thing or will always go for, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it, like the sugary food and quotations, and they'll never go for more traditional dinner food or something like that. So if we're going to call this, say, a picky eater, then what would you say about that kid, you know, keeping some of the nutrition piece in the back of our minds? So let's start with realizing that, um, well, I'm going to be answering this from making some assumptions, right? But the reality is that every time I might have a parent or a family come with a concern like this, there could be a hundred different reasons for why this is actually happening. So there is no one answer to like, why do kids only want to eat you know, the bread or the dessert or something. Um, well, there usually is a reason. And there's also some kids who are just more drawn to those certain foods. So, you know, line up 10 different kids, there's going to be 10 different sets of preferences for these kids. So some kids are just naturally going to be more sweets forward, more carbohydrate forward. Other kids are going to be more more vegetable forward or more meat forward in terms of their preferences. It is really that, I won't say 100% of the time because that's never the case, but very often what we're actually noticing as the problem is the parent's preoccupation due to their own fear and worry and angst about sugar and they're projecting that fear onto their child. So parents become hugely concerned about something that they notice might be more of a pattern for all kinds of reasons from diet culture. And then what we also know to be true is there is a cycle that begins where the parents react to certain ways that kids eat, which perpetuates maybe more selective eating, more anxious eating, or more problematic eating. So we really can't separate out how a child is eating and just make it like child's problem from what's happening at home with food, how parents talk about food, how parents serve food, how parents judge eating, praise, pressure, what's available, what's not available, how are parents reacting at the birthday party when there's snacks or sweets out, right? All of these things are playing into why a child might be developing certain patterns of eating. Yeah. So just to the point where you're saying about perpetuating certain cycles, let's just use an example. So I'm a seven-year-old and my favorite food is pizza, but it's not only my favorite food, it's kind of the only food that I eat. Say you're the parent, what do you do? Do we have pizza for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Do we say we're going to have it once a day? Do we have certain rules about it? 
what is there to do if that's the case? Yeah. So if truly the case is where a child is only eating, you know, less than 10 or five different foods, I would say that that certainly is concerning. Well, first of all, I would refer this person to someone who can work with them, who is a specialized specialist in this area of feeding or eating disorders to truly help a family like this. But generally, if that were my child, let's say, I think parents need to recognize that the reaction that they do have in front of the child is an important one. So are we promoting more fear and anxiety and problems, or are we reacting in a way that says, you know, you have permission to eat this food, you have permission to get as much food as you need. So that's a message we're sending. We're probably not really using, you know, words like that with a a three or a four-year-old, but we want to convey that the bottom line in this, at this dinner time, is that the child gets the food if they need food to eat, right? So that's the bottom line. But I can understand that parents want, you know, it's hard to have a child that has a lot of picky preferences. That's really stressful for a parent. So number one, working with someone who can help them on an individual level, but knowing that change is going to unfold over time. So this is never a quick process. And we know that the eating experience is really an embodied experience. There's a lot going on inside the body of a child who may be anxious or fearful about food. So the best thing that we can do is at meal or snack time, help a child be relaxed and calm. That is going to be the number one first place to go to think about what else could be going on at the mealtime or the table that might be causing them to be anxious of trying something new. Thinking about how foods are presented. Is there a lot of try it, try it, try it, have just one, have just one bite. You need to have it, you know, that kind of pressure, even though we know parents are doing it from a place of just wanting them to get more variety and nutrition, that pressure is not likely to be effective for a lot of kids. So the more that we can relax and make mealtimes calm and enjoyable, the more that child's body is going to associate eating time with something that is calm and safe. So that's a really important place to start. Nutritionally, I would suggest that a a very selective eater take a multivitamin, a good quality multivitamin, and then thinking about ways that they can meet their macronutrient, carbohydrate, protein, and fat and fiber needs through foods that they do accept. So we're always looking at these feeding questions from a place of what's really the biggest priority for this child that we don't have the same end goal for all children. Nobody is going to be the same eater as someone else, even as adults. I'm wondering if that helps kind of answer. Yeah, it helps a ton. And and like I said, every answer is going to lead to many more questions. I guess just to clarify. So let's say I serve dinner. I'm one of those parents who have dinner on the table every single day, which is in and of itself a very difficult thing to do. And I make a couple of different foods. Let's say, so tonight I'm making meat pasta. So I'll have pasta, bolognese, and then a roasted veggie. And so my kid only wants the pasta. That's what he wants to eat. And are you saying that over time, if it's out and he can eat whatever he wants from the table, eventually he might come to try it. He might not like it. He might try it. He might like it. But that a time, a timeline is not something that I can set for him. 
Yes, that's a really good summary. I think there's a risk in pressuring or forcing a child to eat that vegetable, which is there are some beliefs that are going to form some relationship with this roasted vegetable, even, you know, it's unconscious, subconscious at that level, but that, oh, that's the food I'm forced to eat. That's not the food I want to eat. Parents can certainly try things like making sure there's enough oil and salt on vegetables to make them palatable and tasty. Um, I've seen parents really require that their children eat, you know, dried out veggies from the veggie tray at a party before they're allowed to have another piece of pizza that doesn't even taste good, right? Or eating fruit that's mushy or unflavorful. And so we have to think about what are we really pressuring them to do there when we're doing that? Are we just fulfilling our own need that, oh, my child needs to have a fruit or vegetable every meal so that I can feel like I'm a good parent and they're a successful eater? Or do we want them to know that like strawberries in the summertime are one of their favorite foods because they're so delicious and that maybe in the wintertime, there's not as many fruits that we prefer and really like. And how natural that is for a child to be so wise that they don't even know why they don't want it. They just know they don't. So we're really promoting this natural body wisdom while we are providing consistent food and giving permission to eat enough food. Those are kind of two of the big things that come into play among others. I'm curious, maybe this is for an older child or an adolescent, what your opinion is on nutrition science classes or what uh, maybe they called it. I think they called it health when I was in school, teaching about whatever the food pyramid looks like these days or different foods, nutritional value, you know, just so kids have that piece of information. And I'm curious what your take on that is. If it were just some nutrition information about science, maybe about vitamins or about food, that would be one thing. But we know that, that our middle schoolers, high schoolers are living inside a world that has moralized food and that is very charged with judgment around food. So we can't just have a health class that talks about nutrition and food. Well, first of all, you know, they're also talking about tracking calories and weight loss and BMI. It's part of that. It's part of the curriculum. I don't think that those classes are helpful in that sense, but we know that many kids, the majority of kids already have a lot of ideas about bodies and about health and about the thin ideal. And so they're sort of saturated and primed to like attach to rules and become fearful of food if they learn something about it that that is really fear-based. So I think there's a lot of risk. I mean, personally, I've seen many, many teens who have problematic assignments and projects in these health classes related to weight loss or weight management, calorie counting, that sort of thing. Um, I think it's really problematic and dangerous. Yeah. So kind of along those lines, there's been an initiative in the entire country and probably world to promote, and I'm going to use air quotes here, healthy behaviors because of something you alluded to before, the news is kind of obsessed with this childhood obesity epidemic. And so, for example, banning sizes of sugary drinks or completely taking out vending machines in schools or having nutrition labels on in restaurants, even more on a sort of economic level, like taxing some of these sugar, sugary foods or processed foods. 
So I guess I'm curious, um, and I guess I'm assuming it's kind of along the same lines of what we're talking about, but just to specifically talk about this piece. Why do you think it's important to focus on the relationship with food as opposed to these, quote, health-promoting behaviors when we've gotten to this point where there are kids that are really struggling with so many things? That's such a good question. I also have my master's in public health, so I'm very... Ooh, perfect person (laughs) to ask. Really aware of you know, the programs and the things that have been implemented along these lines. I mean, there are so many problems with this. One of the biggest problems is that all of the money and the effort and the energy that is being put into like further demonizing foods or further trying to get people to stop eating is completely ignoring the fact that there are tens of millions of families in our country that don't even have enough food and can't even afford enough food. So if we really want to tackle public health and nutrition, we need to be tackling getting enough food to people and getting affordable food, affordable, fresh food to families who need it. I think that it is a lot of wasted time, energy, and money that actually is rooted in weight stigma and fat phobia when we are just putting all this emphasis on people needing to eat less of certain foods. We're missing the point, I think, when it comes to nutrition and public health. It also really, though, on an individual level for these young people, these messages add to the weight stigma. So we know that weight stigma harms health, both physically and mentally over the long term. So when a person grows up believing that they should avoid certain foods or that soda, they might have a belief that soda makes you fat. So you shouldn't eat soda. And that's why they tax it because they don't want fat people. This is all like, you know, hypothetically, these are kind of the messages that are sent. But what we actually know is that the more weight stigma that is out there and the more weight stigma people experience, the more negative health consequences they're going to suffer simply from that weight stigma alone. So when we plant these ideas in the public health sphere and when they are aligned or attached to young people and kids, we are now planting these beliefs very early on. And I do not think that that is a helpful approach. Not only do I not think it, but you ask and you dig for research and evidence around how helpful has it been to, quote, tackle the childhood obesity epidemic, and it has not been helpful at all. I don't think we're on the right path. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just talk to the individual here. I've heard this so many times where my kid is nine years old, 11 years old, and, and he or she is obese. I need to take him to a nutritionist or a dietitian. He has to lose weight. She has to lose weight. What would you say to that parent? Well, to me, this sounds like a parent who is deeply entrenched in fat phobia and deeply afraid of their child living in a bigger body. And I can have compassion for a parent who might be afraid of that, who perhaps experienced some negative, you know, bullying or trauma around living in a bigger body. There are many valid reasons why people attach to this belief that we should be trying to control body size, but none of them are true or real or helpful. This is something that the culture has conditioned this parent into thinking and believing. So it's an example of how we reproduce what's been sold to us. And that this parent likely just does not understand the harm that has been caused to their child 
by instilling this belief that their body is a problem. So if I heard a parent say this, I would want to take some time to help them understand and help myself understand where is this urgency coming from and what really is the problem here? Is there a health problem? Is there an eating disorder? To really define that because a child's body size is never the problem. So we need to go and really investigate that first off. Like babies are born at many different weights and sizes, right? There's a whole spectrum of body diversity. And so we know that body size diversity exists from day one, and that's not something that's ever going to change. So diagnosing somebody's body size is a problem, which is where that term, quote, obese is coming from, is misinformed from the beginning. So this parent is not set up to operate or make decisions about their child's health from a place of fact, first and foremost. And a child at any size can have a health problem. So I wouldn't just write this off and say, there's nothing wrong with your child. You're just judging them for their body size. But again, finding out out what the concern really is. If this child has an eating disorder, what they need is health at every size informed care But it's very likely that the problem is the beliefs here and the judgment and the shaming and the stigma and the consequences of that that really need to be addressed. So then the part of this, oh, go ahead. No, I'm just curious to to take that to the next level. Let's say we caught this parent a little bit too late and they've said this already and they've already taken their kid to a dietitian or a nutritionist and the kid's been on a diet. What happens? when the kid goes on a diet? So when a child goes on a diet, they have, we can't predict where they're going to fall, but it's highly likely that they will repeat diets over the course of their life. So about a quarter of people who diet in general will develop an eating disorder at some point in their life. And about 35, yes, 35% of dieters sort of end up with what we call pathological dieting that's detrimental to their quality of life, maybe their emotional life, their relationships, or their relationship with themselves. So many people end up experiencing this chronic low-grade stress and anxiety about their body, which is now pretty normal. When you talk about that with people, it's like, oh, yeah. Everybody feels that way, don't they? (laughs) Which is, again, part (laughs) of this problem. But we know that kids who diet, so if a child is dieting, they likely believe that there's something wrong with their weight. And we know that kids who believe that their body size is wrong or unhealthy are more likely to skip meals, to vomit after eating, to binge eat, abuse laxatives, suffer low self-esteem, have high depressive symptoms, eat when they're not hungry and are likely to experience weight gain just as a result of the attempts at weight loss. On the other side of things, kids, and they've studied this, and it's fascinating, but kids at any size who believe their weight to be just fine for them are more likely to experience relatively stable growth and development, including weight into adulthood. They're less likely to binge eat. They're less likely to engage in risky weight control behaviors also less likely to smoke cigarettes, to abuse alcohol, to use drugs, and less likely to engage in risky sexual behaviors. So there's a lot of reasons why parents need to take this seriously and not 
initiate this dieting cycle for kids. Yeah. And I'm assuming there's a bunch of that that's correlation and not necessarily causation because we're talking about a parenting style here. Somebody who's not a helicopter mom, but who's not out to lunch and they're somewhere in the middle, they provide the structure, but enough to, you know, help the kid find their place, which is really hard to do. But I guess what this is saying is that it's so important for their development overall. Yeah. And with this, you know, we're really helping parents to think critically about the things that they're doing and even down to like what they're reading and sharing and talking about at the dinner table or what their kids are hearing them say around the house. And all of that does take energy and awareness for sure. So anything that's going to be going outside of the status quo is going to take some attention. And we do know that what Time, energy, time and energy are not things that parents have a lot of. <laughs> so it, it <laughs> really it does lightly. make it hard. Yeah. And so it kind of is another reason just why we wanted to write the book in the tone that we did, which is that like, we have so much compassion and understanding for how hard this is, for how painful it can be to take a look at what's been going on at home and maybe realize that there's some things going on that you want to be doing differently or that maybe you've done for a long time and that that can be super painful and difficult for a parent to go through. And we know that and we honor that and we just want to help. So let's say I'm a parent listening to this and you've sold me to a certain extent. Um, I think I want to try this, but I have kids that are seven or 10 years old, maybe even 15 years old, and I haven't done anything even remotely similar to this. How can I start to turn things around? What are some sort of practical tips for me? So like I said, we know that there can be a lot of like overpowering shame that can come up um, because all parents want to do is do the right thing, right? And help their kids out. So with a seven, a 10 and a 15 year old, there's some different developmental stages going on there. So it might look a little different, you know, the way that they might talk with their 15 year old, maybe a little bit more directly, maybe even some repair through apologizing and acknowledging maybe some things that were said and a commitment to do things differently. I think that there's always opportunity for repair and healing. And actually by engaging in that, which can be so uncomfortable and difficult, but it can be incredibly healing for a teen to have a direct conversation like that, where a parent acknowledges uh, maybe something that they have done that they don't want to do anymore. But the other way that we're doing this with these kids is not even by talking about it so directly, but by committing to a few things that we're going to be doing differently from here on out. And it could be something like removing the scale. And so that that's not the thing that's happening in the family dynamics or at home anymore. And, you know, if a seven-year-old notices, Hey, you know, mom, where'd the scale go? You used to get on the scale every morning and Maybe they're looking for it, right? Maybe one of the kids is looking for it. That might sound like, you know, I realized that the scale really isn't helping me and I don't need to be focusing on watching my weight for my health. What I want to do is listen to my body and respect my body and take care of myself. And I don't really think that the scale is going to be a part of that anymore. So you know what? Our family doesn't use the scale anymore. I think that they're 
you know, that's just one example, but a food example might be that a parent is taking steps to bring back some more permission to eat in the house. So maybe they're deciding they're not going to be commenting on how much their kids are eating anymore, but they're going to let that be a decision that they're making themselves and sticking to more of the division of responsibility, which is that no parents and caregivers are deciding what's for dinner. And I do encourage them to ask for input and give a few choices and really have it be like a family affair if people are interested, but that we're no lo- parents are no longer kind of over controlling the amounts and the portions and things like that. I think this is so scary for parents, especially who've been trying to control the situation in this particular way and no fault of their own, just the information that's been out there and bringing in more, I guess, foods that they weren't comfortable with before is terrifying. And I think part of what you're alluding to with this division of responsibility piece, which is a conversation in and of itself, is that we're not saying that your home is going to become a free-for-all. There is a certain element of structure that kids really need. And it's not like, okay, what do you want for dinner? And everybody can have something different every day. And you can say, you know, we can bring out six different ideas and you can say no and, you know, shebang. I think the point is that we need some sort of structure with flexibility here. Yes. So flexibility is huge. It's something that I think just doesn't get enough attention in the whole division of responsibility conversation as it's usually talked about. But I think about it as we really want to support our kids in having an opinion. Do you want rice or bread with dinner tonight? Or do you want oranges or grapes or, you know, things like, so giving choice, I think is really helpful to have kids be engaged and be, it's a practice for them to check in. I don't know. What do I like? Oh, mom's asking my opinion or dad's asking my opinion. We don't have to be rigid about the division of responsibility. It can be relaxed. It can be flexible that it's generally we're looking at our role as the provider of the food and making sure that there's enough food and that really we want even our youngest eaters, we want to kind of prompt them to do some checking in, to have an opinion, to know what their likes and dislikes are, like really not shutting any of that down, which I think it often does get shut down when DOR isn't really enhanced by flexibility or when people aren't paying attention to the flexibility piece. Yeah. And if people want to learn a little bit more about that, I can link to some resources and potentially do a different podcast on division of responsibility. But before I let you go, can you just share with our listeners where they can find you? I am at intuitive eating RD on Instagram. So that's the best way to kind of follow along. And we have a link to our book there in my profile. And my co-author, Amy Severson, is at Amy, which is A-M-E-E underscore R-D. And the book is going to be coming out on January 4th, 2022, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. Yes, we're so excited. Thanks so much for the support. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right, talk next time.